Hi, this is Ben Lowell of Back to the Bible Canada. And today we begin a brand new series with Dr. Newfeld entitled Celebration of Marriage. So get ready as Dr. Newfeld takes us to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 with his message entitled Celebration of Covenant. I've sometimes wondered whether marriage is like the violin. Have you ever heard someone in the early stages of learning to play that instrument? It sounds as if they're torturing a cat. With each pass of the bow over the strings, the noises that reach my ears must vibrate at a level that I feel like I'm in danger of losing my feelings and that my tear ducts in my eyes are releasing some kind of tears that make my face wrinkle up in the look of agony and torment. But in the hands of a master, that that same instrument sets my soul to flight and leads me to the place of exquisite wonder. And it seems to me that I've met couples whose marriage is utterly destroying everything that they are and others who have found in their marriage a secret of the richness of life and a vehicle that propels them in their walk with God. Now, for one week with teaching and with interviews, I want you to explore with me a celebration of marriage. If you listen well for this week, I think there's enough here to help you to either grow deeper in your marriage or to help you find healing and restoration in your marriage. I think any marriage really can be transformed from being like that screeching violin to an instrument that produces beauty. I think the place to start is in defining marriage. In our day in which so many couples live together out of wedlock, marriage is for many simply a formalizing of a relationship that's already begun. For them, it's a piece of paper or a public declaration of what they already have. And so for them, the key components are sex and love and relationship and commitment and fidelity and learning how to live together. And in a strange way, those very issues—sex, love, relationship, commitment, fidelity, learning how to live together—are often all that Christian people talk about when they talk about marriage. And so for them, the difference between Christians and, for that matter, people of faith and those who have no faith is the timing of the live-in relationship. People with faith believe in a formal marriage that must occur before the live-in relationship, and those without faith often think that one can live together before the formality of marriage. But marriage is so much more than a formalized relationship. Failure to understand what marriage is is like failure to understand what a violin is. I mean, after all, you can use a violin as a substitute for a baseball bat or a fly swatter or firewood or juggling objects. See, in the same way, human beings can live together and have sex and form attachments and even love each other, but they have no understanding of the essential nature of marriage. Perhaps another example would be the example of law enforcement. You know, there are people who carry guns and there are people who punish others, but criminal gangs have no relationship to law enforcement in the same way. One should not confuse things that on the outside might look like marriage, that is, a man and a woman living together, but that's not necessarily marriage at all. And so in order to understand the institution of marriage, one needs to consult the one who created marriage, that's God. It should not be surprising then to learn that the first human institution is not government or even religion, it's marriage. So let's go to Genesis 1. I notice in verse 27 that the Creator announces what He has made. 
It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. See, I notice in that passage that man, or I suppose as we might say it today, humankind, is created both in his image and as male and female. And immediately we're left with a question. God could have found numerous ways of propagating the species. Why did he choose, in his wise designs, to create the human race in two genders, in male and female? I mean, part of the answer to that question is found in the second chapter of Genesis. Whereas Genesis chapter 1 is the wide-angle lens of the account of creation, Genesis 2 presents us with a unique, up-close, and personal account of the creation of the man and the woman. We notice, first of all, that God had already created the man and that he had given him a charge. Verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. See, God is the creator, but man, created in God's image, is given the charge to oversee the creation, to care for it, to work it, and to tend to its development. But then we come to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. Seen by itself, that statement is altogether surprising, almost if you don't think me irreverent in saying so. But the statement seems in direct contradiction to everything that God has set up to that point. See, back in chapter 1, each successive day is met with the words, and God saw that it was good. After all, we're talking about God, and he never creates something that displays shabby workmanship. His craft is perfect. Everything he makes leaves nothing to be added. See, I enjoy reading motorcycle magazines, especially the ones that introduce new motorcycles from the manufacturer. And in many cases, the reviewer will give a list of both positives and negatives with each bike. Well, that's not because the reviewer is cranky or looking for reasons to complain. It's because on this side of the fall, well, nothing's perfect. But God's not like that. When he creates, he leaves nothing to be created or added. And so we have to believe that the words, it is not good in Genesis 2, is not because God got something wrong. It must be that God deliberately left something undone and then completed it later so that we might never forget that if this thing had not been completed, the human race would always have been lacking something that's essential. And the point is that had God not made the human race as male and female, something profound would have been lacking. Might I just break in for a moment and personalize that? For those of you who are married, one of the greatest insights or one of the best aha moments you'll ever have about your spouse is that if he or if she was not in your life, something profound would have been lacking. It's not that you got married for sex or for friendship or for happiness. You got married because something essential in your humanity would have been missing were it not for marriage. Look at your spouse and say to her or to him, without you, I would never have discovered my life's purpose or the meaning of my existence. Now, I can already hear it. Someone's going to say, well, what about singles? Are you saying that they're not complete? Now, there is a place for singleness, and 1 Corinthians 7 discusses that, but might I point out something that so many of us have not understood? Marriage is the primary way in which God designed the human life to be. The Creator made you so that you would function best within marriage. Now, I say that because in our culture, 
heterosexual marriage is not seen as an essential institution, but as an option, as one option among many. But hear me. The Creator so designed our essential humanity that something is not good when we are not married. Again, for those of you who are single, please don't bristle. You know, I'm going to speak about the issue of singleness at other times and see that God really does redeem singleness and makes it something wonderful in his hands. But I do the entire Bible a disservice if I deny that God created human beings to live within a lifelong covenant of marriage. You know, a little incident from my own pastoral background. I once had a young man in his early 30s approach me asking me for prayer. He told me that he was constantly struggling with lust. Could I pray that he'd be delivered from this battle with desire? I pointed out to him 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. It says, But because of the temptations to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And I said to him, What we need to do is to pray that you would find a good and a godly and a gorgeous woman and that you'd marry her and live a lifetime of finding a common mission together as husband and wife. Well, you'd have thought that a snake had just bitten him. I mean, he reacted in horror. And he said to me, look, I'm not ready for marriage. And my response was, your body is telling you that you are. And instead of understanding the way your creator designed you, what you're asking of me is to pray that somehow you be spiritually neutered so that you won't feel desire. See, I wish we'd hear the Creator's words. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. See, I believe it's a part of the Christian church's countercultural task to teach our little boys and our little girls to prepare themselves for the day when they will have the privilege of becoming godly husbands and godly wives. We need to teach them. The Creator designed them that way. We need to recapture in the church the sanctity of marriage, the honor of marriage. And we need to set marriage in the place where our Creator placed it as the first of all the institutions that He had designed for the good of the human race. Every day we pray that the Bible teaching programs of Back to the Bible Canada will be a great blessing for those who take opportunity to listen. Your feedback means so much and provides so much encouragement as we work to bring trustworthy and meaningful ministry your way. Comments like one we recently received from Kathy who said, I value your program and it has had a positive impact in my walk with the Lord. And well, that's priceless. Thanks, Kathy. Your words mean so much. And thanks to everyone who supports our ongoing efforts to create quality Bible teaching programs that make a difference. And don't forget, you can listen to all of our programs and teaching series online at backtothebible.ca or by signing up for our podcast, audio mail, or mobile app, and they're all free. For more information about the resources available through Back to the Bible Canada, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. So much has been said about the differences between men and women. Years ago, a secular book was entitled, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And on the Christian side, an excellent book was entitled, Men Are Like Waffles and Women Are Like Spaghetti. The point the author was trying to make is that men naturally categorize their lives while women tend to attach all manner of varied strands into a whole. 
there are gender differences in our understanding of the world. Now, from my vantage point, I've often taught that men tend to be singular and women tend to be holistic. What I mean by that is that men tend to see the world in terms of a focused perspective in which we can ignore all the other distractions around us and concentrate on one often long-term perspective. Women, on the other hand, tend to incorporate all the experience of life and see it from the immediate perspective. Look at it this way. Think of a woman's mind as you might an open-concept-designed house in which all the rooms flow into each other. In contrast, think of a man's mind as an office building in which all the offices and rooms are designed for a separate purpose. And so men tend to think in terms of categories. In one category or office are one's finances. In another, one's work accomplishments. Still another, one's family, and still in another, one's marriage. Indeed, a man might even categorize his sex life with his wife in a different category than his friendship with her. But for a woman, this world of closing off certain categories from one another, well, that can seem so unfamiliar. After all, isn't life one big whole in which all from work to finances to children to lovemaking is called life? Now, if I had time, I would make the case that both perspectives have huge strengths and huge weaknesses. But God so designed it that together, a man and a woman would learn to cooperate with the Creator's designs, causing this arrangement of things to make music like a fine violin. Both men and women have huge strengths connected to their gender, but also huge weaknesses, and the violin of marriage is played well when they learn to appreciate and count on what the other uniquely brings to their marriage. But while this uniqueness of maleness and femaleness is surely the Creator's design, the way in which a man and a woman would interact is also a part of His design. And so in the Creator's ordering of the events of creation, He creates the man first, and God pronounces that it is not good for the man to be alone. He would make a helper who is fit for him. But before that, God has a plan for Adam. Well, let me read it to you from Genesis 2, 19 to 20. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. See, this matter of naming fulfills a number of functions. One of those functions is expressing dominion over the thing that's named. You might think of times in the Bible where naming expresses dominion. You see, when Nebuchadnezzar named, or in this case, renamed Daniel and his three friends, he's expressed his authority over the captive Jews. And so as Adam names the created order, he's expressing the reason God created him, to rule over the works of God's hand. But naming also implies understanding. Giving the various living things names is a way of coming to terms with that which God has made. We might say that the entire scientific enterprise, at least in terms of understanding, can be expressed in giving names for the phenomenon which we see. And so we get a sense here that Adam is learning to express his function in life. He's learning about the created order. He's learning how to rule over the works of God's hands. But as he does so, he comes to terms with himself and his relationship to the created order. Verse 20 ends with the words, But for Adam there was found no helper fit for him. Now remember the context. His task is to understand the creation and rule over the creation, but he finds that he can't do it by himself. 
and that there's nothing in the existing creation that can help him. And you know the account. God formed the woman and out of the man so that the man would always know that she's not a separate entity, but that the woman shared in his essence, shared fully in his nature, and was, as he is, a full image bearer of God. And so Adam is presented with his complement, the woman, who together with him fulfills the task that God has created him for. This task becomes the purpose for marriage. Be fruitful and fill the earth and rule over it. Do it together. I deliberately created you so that you could not do it alone. You know, as interesting as all of that is, the Bible is leading us somewhere. Verse 24 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You know, this one Bible verse is so full of meaning that it would be impossible to overestimate its importance. First, you would notice that verse 24 has an application to the real lives of people, all people, who come after Adam and Eve. Generations of people will come and go, and with each new generation, that which is learned from creation is to be repeated. A man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, notice what happens. As we continue to read through the Bible, more is told to us about the unique relationship between parents and children. Children are called upon to obey their parents. Parents are called upon to disciple their children. Indeed, the family itself is created by God for the sake of training the next generation. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, verses 5 to 7. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. And so the home, the family, is the first place where love for God and learning his word is to take place. The role of children then is to submit to the God-given authority of their parents. But, says Genesis 2.24, there comes a time when that authority comes to an end. When a man marries his wife, he is to leave his father and mother. I mean, I know, I know. There are cultures all over the world where a man marries his wife and then brings her into the home of his parents. But listen, that's not the biblical model. The Creator did not design marriage that way. At marriage, the authority of the parents is broken. Parents are still honored, but they're not obeyed. Now, if I might here, one of the key problems that sometimes develops in marriage is that one or even both parties in the marriage will not break their obedience relationship with their parents. Parents still intervene. Listen, if you're a mom and a dad to married children, you'd better never tell them what to do. And if you do, you're really a rebel. God commands you not to. See, you need to repent. But if you're a husband or a wife and feel that your parents have a greater influence on you than your husband or wife, you're in direct rebellion to the way in which God had designed for you to live. You know how I wish I could convince young married men and women not to complain about their spouse to their parents. The marriage relationship becomes primary and takes precedence over mom and dad. And as the newly married couple have children, the raising and discipleship of their children is their primary responsibility until such a time as those children themselves grow up and marry, wherein a new family unit is again being formed. And it is this, 
leaving father and mother and holding fast to one's wife or husband, that's precisely the way in which God wanted the human race to function. It's out of this commitment that the Bible says the two will become one flesh. I know there's an allusion here to sexual union of the husband and the wife, but the Bible's never shy to talk about sex, and so it could have said, and the two will have sex, but that's not how it says it, does it? Since the man and woman are to discover that God created them for each other, and since they are to understand that they can't do what God has commanded them to do without each other, they begin to act like dance partners. Now, I don't know if you dance, but dancing, at least of the ballroom dancing variety, is an activity where both partners must function not as individuals, but as a unit. Each step is done in concert with the other. And so here's an opening word from Scripture. Learn to dance with your husband and dance with your wife. Be in step with the Spirit and walk in step with each other. Celebrate your marriage and look at your partner and say, Honey, I couldn't live this life without you. And you know what? God designed us that way. He designed us for each other. John, thanks for a great beginning to this series on marriage. You know, we're doing a couple of different things this week with this series. Over the next three days, we're going to be inviting married couples into the studio and talking about their marriages, about pre-marriage, about uh, a marriage breakdown, and about uh, the struggles and the context of marriage, particularly for today. So we're looking forward to that. But one of the questions that comes to mind, John, as you were saying uh, what you were saying today, and, I, and I'm in complete agreement, but what of the, of the marriage relationship where one of the spouses are lost earlier on, something happens, something tragic, and so that journey together doesn't continue. They're on their own. Yeah. And, and in the end, that is going to be the story of most of our marriages. Uh, marriage is a temporary function in this life. Uh, when there is an untimely death, or in some cases even a, a, you know, a spouse will suffer the other one leaving them, um, one finds everything has changed in an instant. And I want to say this. From 1 Corinthians 7, we believe that God has not ended our lives. There is still a very important role for us to play. You know, in many ways, this single life allows for an individual to begin to follow the Lord in a way that they could not do so as a married couple. And so there's so much to say about that, but I would want to express hope to that individual and to say, God has so much more for you yet. Thanks so much, John. Remember to join us again for the rest of this week, Celebrating Marriage, Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Every week, near 100 radio outlets across Canada and some 1,500 times a week, Back to the Bible Canada airs one of their Bible teaching and engagement programs on radio. Every day, literally thousands more receive Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again with Phil Calloway, and In Doubt via podcast, online, mobile application, or audio mail. Thousands visit our website to read articles, blogs, listen to previous Bible teaching series, and request resources. And this is just some of the evidence of people's deep thirst to know the God of the Bible. Now entering 2017, even more is being added to our programming to maximize ministry impact, including Truth and Life Today, a weekly video program with Dr. John Newfeld, beginning January 16th. This program responds to your questions regarding life and faith 
According to the Bible. You can discover all the programs and resources available by contacting us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.